Since returning from Israel, some of you have asked me what was my favorite memory or what struck me the most by being there. I really should prepare an answer because when I'm asked that, I kind of look like I don't know what I'm talking about because there's so much. It's like, where do you begin to talk about what's impacted you? However, there is an image that grabbed me early on in the trip. Matthew, you want to put that up there? I'll tell you what it is. It's the dome in the Basilica, the Church of the Annunciation in Nazareth. Now, it's going to be a little strange that you're thinking, well, Jackie, you went to study the ancient world of Jesus, and you come back with this modern image in your head. And I did, and this is why. Found out that what that, it, it, the way the architect created this, and this was created in the mid uh, of the last century. There have been many churches over the site where Mary, where archaeologists are confident, was Mary's childhood home, where Gabriel, in fact, came and spoke to her to let her know what God's plan was that he was inviting her into, and she responded. But the way the dome is, is set, there's an opening that you will see, and the architect created that so that we're looking up through that into the heavens, and it comes down right over the spot where Mary and Gabriel had their conversation. And the idea is that God is not only in his heavenlies. He's not distant and removed, but God is looking down. It's the eye of God looking right down in that space. And it struck me that not only is that true for what happened with Mary and Gabriel, but that is, in fact, how God moves in our lives. That in many ways, there's a dome over every story in the Bible, every activity in our life where God is looking down and that we can actually be looking up to him. I love that image, and I carried it with me the rest of the trip and beyond. You're going to see that today, and I want you to think about that dome when we're entering into this next um, sermon and talk on the, uh, on the story of Ruth. It's a rich, rich story. And as we talk about it, think about the eye of God looking down, and he's looking down the lives of three people, a woman who's facing life with triple bereavement. Her husband and her two sons have died a young withered woman from Moab and the Bethlehem farmer, that God is going to move and enter into their lives and connect them in a spectacular way. Let me remind you of the setting of the story. For those of you who weren't here last week, I would invite you to go back and, and you can go on our website and you can listen to Pastor Chuck's sermon from last week. It will help you really carry you on into the rest of the sermons that we'll be doing this month. But this is a time of darkness for God's people. It's a time of instability where the judges were ruling, and they were ruling poorly and even destructively. And just as in every story of Scripture, I hope that you have come to see that here. We say this often. We recognize quickly that things are not just what they appear, that there's something more that God is doing. Another story is being told. So if you have your Bibles open, let's look at the passage that we just read. Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah are at a crossroad. A decision has to be made. Naomi has urged, out of great love for her daughters-in-law, she has urged them to go back to their homes, knowing that that's where they could be taken care of. Go back to your mother's home. You will be fed. You will be taken care of. Orpah is very pragmatic. She says, okay, that's a good idea. I get it. I'm returning home. But Ruth has a totally different and amazing response. Ruth says, Naomi, do not urge me to leave you. Don't do it. 
These verses are probably familiar to many of you. You may have heard them read at a wedding. Um, It's often where where people want a new husband, a new wife, want to make a declaration that no matter what happens in their life, they're not going to forsake the other. But they also want to say that your God is my God. And the way we're going to do that is that we're going to have a shared faith in who God is, who's going to allow us to do that. I love that image, especially at a wedding. But I also want to push you today to think about the words a little differently. You see, Ruth is making in those words her own statement of faith. She's making a a statement of her conversion. Ruth says, no, I can't go back because I'm no longer who I once was. I'm no longer trusting in the gods that I was raised with, so don't ask me to leave you because your God has, in fact, become my God. So the question for me, and I hope you're wondering about it, is so how in the world did that happen? How do we ever, ever understand how God persuades and invites someone to follow him? Ruth is using language that she had learned by being in the household of Naomi and Elimelech and Mahon and Chilion. She had been part of this covenant family for more than 10 years. She's learned to celebrate the festivals. She's learned to pray the prayers and to prepare the Shabbat meal. Yahweh had been spoken of repeatedly in this family that she had married into. And perhaps even more importantly, Ruth has seen up close and personal from Naomi what it means to continue in faith in the middle of great, great sorrow. Could it be, is it even possible, that when Ruth saw Naomi's honest expression of grief, that she was in fact drawn to Naomi's God. That really doesn't make much sense, does it? But actually it does. Faith is still faith, even when it is tried faith. Faith that is stretched, faith that is tested, faith that is pulled to the limits of endurance, it is still faith. Where there's, when there's struggle, when there's sorrow, when there are challenges, challenges, faith is not on hold. Faith has not temporarily become unbelief. Naomi never says that she no longer believes. No, what she does say is, I'm overwhelmed with heartache. I'm overwhelmed with sadness. For her, it's a time, it's a long season of defeat, of failure and disappointment, and wondering what God is doing in her life. I know that some of you know that kind of faith. I know that some of you right now are experiencing it. And let me encourage you that if you haven't had your faith pushed in that way, don't worry. Don't worry. You'll be part of the club at some point. Just know that you will. And when you are pushed that way, it will not be the end of your faith. It does not have to be. No, it can in fact be a new and a deepening faith. And actually, I think it can become the faith that you've really longed for. Here's what we need to remember. There's no immediate advantage for Ruth in choosing as she does. But choosing to have faith in Yahweh, the sovereign God of the universe, is going to be much better than going back to Moab and the gods and goddesses and worshiping them. They're empty. There's nothing there. Ruth can go back to everything that represents security, or she can join Naomi following Yahweh into, for her, what is the complete unknown. Friends, that is actually the story of faith. 
There are no guarantees where your faith will lead you. But faith guarantees that wherever it leads you, God will be right there with you in it. You see, what Ruth knew was that she was at a crucial time and place where she needed to make a decision. She knew that she needed to decide what she was going to do with what she had learned and experienced about Yahweh. Was she going to trust God or was she not? Let me ask you, do you remember a moment or the, or the moment when you realized that right now, not in the future, not in a time down the road when everything might feel better for you to embrace faith, but right now that you were choosing to turn your back on what amounted to ridiculous substitute gods. This was Ruth's moment. And Ruth's decision to go with Naomi is a huge moment in God's great story. But what about Naomi? We tend to look to faith in terms of the big circumstances of our lives. But faith sees God's provision in the details, in the little things. Faith sees the food at the table, the companions for the journey, and knowing where it has come from. And as Naomi and Ruth are preparing for the 100-mile journey that they're going to take together from Moab, below sea level, up to Bethlehem, perhaps there is a spark that is just beginning to light in Naomi as she begins to get it. She says, Ruth, you're not my husband. Ruth, you're not my sons that I loved. Ruth, I have actually grown quite fond of you as my daughter-in-law. And even in her sorrow and pain, Naomi can begin to recognize that God has not stopped showing his care and provision. And she doesn't know it yet, but God's loving kindness for her is going to come in surprising ways through this young woman. We know when we fully believe that Scripture tells us everything, absolutely everything that we need to know for faith and practice. But I still want to know those parts where God is silent. It's more of a curiosity thing. It's not particularly dramatic. It's not a theological question per se. But I want to know things like, what was the conversation like as the two women were journeying across the desert together? Did Ruth doubt her decision? If she did, did she talk about it with Naomi? I want to know, was Naomi easy to travel with? Did Naomi start to cry when she could see Bethlehem move from appearing as a mirage to where she could see the perimeters of her hometown? Even so, we're told that when she returned to Bethlehem, that for Naomi was bittersweet. How could it not be? What should have been a time of great joy and great reunion with other family members and friends was certainly, it was sad for many. Could this be Naomi? Indeed it is. And if this were a movie, the music at this point would sound like a woeful lament. And it would press down on us and we would be saying, please make it stop. Please make it stop. Please, when do we get to the hopeful part? I can't take this anymore and you're just observing it. You're not living it. But indeed, we do move to the hopeful part, and we do it very quickly. The story begins to turn where we read that Ruth wakes up in Bethlehem, and, and it begins to take a different pace and a different tone. We're, we're given now a picture of a Ruth that I love. I think she would be fun to know and to be with. 
Ruth reminds me of someone who's like a new believer, someone who's new in their faith. She's in a new place. She's living in what for her is a foreign land, but in reality, she has come home because she's now one of God's people. She has this curiosity. She has this energy. She wants to see what it means to live with faith in this God. She's going to go for it, and why not? Why shouldn't she? Sometimes a new believer will do crazy things because their trust in God is so fresh. They've met the living God, and they believe that if he can work in their life as he has, then surely he can take care of the details and needs of their life. In verse 2, we see this, that Ruth has a plan, and so she asks Naomi. She says, let me go to the field and collect grain behind one who will give me favor. Ruth would have learned from Naomi that God had made provision for people like them who were in their circumstances. God had given clear instructions for the time of the harvest. The workers were not to reap the barley right to the corners of the field. No, that was left for the poor people to come behind the workers to reap what they could. God has compassion for the poor and the needy, so he left the opportunity there for them to benefit from the harvest. This Yahweh, Ruth would quickly see, was not like the gods she had left in Moab. Even so, Ruth goes out and she's putting herself in possible physical harm. She's opening herself to ridicule and being ostracized as a foreigner. But she says she is going to go seek favor. And the word that is used there also is the word used for grace. Are you getting the picture? Ruth has a new life, a new faith. She's living in a new place. And she's going to go seek favor. And she is confident that it will be found. Naomi's response is, go, my daughter. And I wonder what Naomi's tone was. She probably watched Ruth going down the street and saying, I wish it was different, my daughter. I wish you didn't have to do such things. I wish I had been able to bring you back to something much better. But verse 3 tells us that Ruth sets out and she goes out exploring in a place she's never been before. It would have been a place jumbled with a patchwork of fields. And it just so happens that she goes to the field that is owned by Boaz. Does it sound like chance that she has just happened to pick the right field? Is it just a coincidence? You know the answer to that. No, not at all. Because you see, God is always, always working in our choices and the way we carry out our responsibilities. God is at work in all those things to bring about our good for his glory. Remember, Ruth set out to find favor, and we're told she finds it. She finds favor with the workers, and she begins to glean and gather the barley. And Boaz, who you will hear about more in coming weeks, he sees her hard work and And he asks the workers about her, and we are told that her reputation had preceded her. In their exchange, Boaz says to Ruth, look no further. This is the field for you. You've got this one. And that he promises that she will be protected, that there will be plenty for her to harvest. And when she is thirsty, she can drink what the young men had drawn. That right there highlights how she is being treated. Because it is highly unlikely that she'd ever had water that had been drawn by the hands of men. That was reserved for those who were held in honor. This isn't just favor. 
This is grace upon grace and more care and provision than she could ever have imagined that morning when she set out. And then I love, she asked the innocent question in verse 10, why have I found favor? She was looking for it. She got it. Why did I get it? It's the very same question you and I ask when we are surprised when God does, in fact, fulfill his promises to us and offers his care and provision in our lives. I love how Boaz answers her question. He responds with a blessing. It's in verse 12. May the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Can you even imagine Ruth in that moment as she realizes the abundance of God's care and provision to a widowed, empty-handed foreigner who has chosen to follow him with absolutely no guarantees. She sits beside the reapers, not behind them. She's not stuck in the corner. She's beside them, and she's eating roasted grain. She's been able to gather more than she ever imagined, and someone else has actually even cooked it for her. She was thirsty, and someone else drew the water for her. She is no longer thirsty. She's no longer hungry. God's provision for her has been abundant. And if that wasn't enough, she's found even more favor. Verse 15, she's invited to gather even more so that when she returns to Naomi at the end of the day, not with just food for the day, that would have been my fondest desire. I just get food for the day. But she returns with what amounted to 26 grains, quarts of grain. She's carrying her apron and she's full. She's full. Enough to provide Naomi and Ruth for a very long time. Which if you use your sanctified imagination, you can imagine that it also would have given Naomi meaningful work. There was so much grain, she wasn't going to let it waste. She's going to put her hands to it. She's going to knead it. She's going to make that bread. And it's certainly going to be more than enough for them. It's going to be out of God's abundance. She would have plenty to share. Did you follow that? Ruth says, I'm going to go seek favor. She finds it. Why have I found favor? Because you've taken refuge under the wings of God. And then she finds even more favor. And God looks down from heaven and he reaches into the lives of Ruth and Naomi and he says, yes, it is true. I do delight in providing for my sons and my daughters. And here's the really amazing thing. She hasn't seen anything yet. And neither have you and I. Last week, many of you know that there were eight of us from Stanwich Church, eight women, that went to the Young Life Camp, two hours away, Lake Champion. We went there to serve. We went there to take care of babies as their teen moms were being, um, being able to enjoy and explore every bit of a Young Life Camp. It's kind of a crazy idea that Young Life had that we're going to do this for teen moms, but we're going to need help to do that so they can bring their, their children with them. And so at the last minute, I got moved to be the nursery leader. Um, some of you know I asked for, to pray for the four-year-olds that I was going to be the nursery leader for, but you should have been praying for the nine to 11-month-olds. So I heard that, and I'm delighted, because that means I'm going to get to just hold the baby. It's going to be great. 
And so Carol Livers and Susie Copley was, were particularly in my nursery. And the first night, I knew we were in trouble. <laughs> you laugh. When I was handed a little boy, I cannot even begin to explain to you what was going on with this child. Don't even try to tell me about your colicky baby because it won't come close. It won't come close. This child, the first night, for three hours, screamed. His body was moving. It just, he just, he's climbing all, you know, just climbing all over me. And you're just like, that night I couldn't sleep. I'm like, oh, no. Oh, no. And so we had to trade off care. You, you couldn't even have him in the nursery. And I'd feel guilty. I'd put him in the stroller just to kind of get him away and to give our arms a break. And he's screaming and kicking his feet. And I got a lot of steps on my Fitbit, and that was about the only good thing about it. <laughs> but the last night, I'm sitting there, and we, I, I was sitting outside the nursery with um, T.K. Kennedy, who's the Young Life Area Director in Long Beach on Long Island. And T.K. had stepped in to help us on many occasions because he'd experienced that when, with his young son. So he had a heart for understanding that. T.K. and I are sitting there, and we really, we, I mean, He's, he, the child's not stopping. And so we were just kind of passing back and forth, and TK and I were just kind of talking, solving all the problems of everything. And so, but, you know, we were just kind of passing back and forth for two and a half hours. And at one point, that child came to me, and the words that came out of my mouth was this, Caden, you don't know what you're missing. And TK didn't miss a beat. And he says, yeah, just like us. Just like us. Friends, God is intent on telling a great story with my life and your life. On your own, we, we can write a pretty good story about our lives. But the one that God is writing is, does not even come close to what we could write on our own. The story God is writing for you and for me bears the hallmarks of the story of Ruth and Naomi because our story is going to be full of grace, it's going to be full of favor, and it's going to be full of abundant loving kindness. The Apostle Paul got it. He was intent on the churches and all the believers understanding this because Paul had experienced this himself. He writes to them over and over. He talks about the spiritual riches that are waiting for them in heaven. He talks about that God causes all things to work together for good. And in these words, he writes to the church at Corinth. He says this. He says, What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no heart has ever imagined, God has prepared for those who love him. Where are you going, Ruth? Where are you going, Jackie? Where are you going, Dan? Where are you going, Lance? I'm going to go seek God's favor. Go then, seek his favor, and know that it will be found, and what you will find will be beyond measure. Thanks be to God.